It's right here in the Word of God. Amen. I'm going to keep doing it. I love it. Uh, you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. Last week we read that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In our passage this week, Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus and He's going to bring him back to life. Before we read, um, I've befriended a 13-year-old kid at Cousins. How many people went to Cousins? Okay. I, mean, I know Franklin here, Mr. Cousins over there. Um, and uh, it's really enlightening to hear and listen to middle schoolers. It really is. Um, such an awkward age. Um, it really is. But um, this young man's name is Tremel. Uh, probably for the last year, I've gotten to know him. And Tremel has watched people die in his life. Um, at 13 years old, he has experienced far more than I have, even really at my age now. And we had not seen each other this summer. And I came back, and the first thing he wanted me to know is he lost two friends this summer. Um, and Tremel has lost people that are really, really close to him. And Tremel, last Monday, he said, Bobby, why is the world the way it is? He asked me that. He said, why things got to be like they are? And I, and I was like, Taken aback, we meet in a guidance counselor's room, and the guidance counselor's offices are around us, and the guidance counselor's doors are always open. And there were two guidance counselors, and I just, not even as a pastor, as a Christian, I went, this is it. And for the next 20 minutes, I explained to him sin creation, then sin, and then Jesus. And the future consummation when Jesus comes back and makes things right. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. See, he knows that. He doesn't know the Bible. I don't, I'm not even sure he knows God, but he knows in his heart of hearts that the way the world is right now is not the way it should be. He had just asked. And so we started talking. I said, and then he goes, well, why did God even create if he knew things were going to be bad? He's a 13-year-old. I'm like, dang, this kid wants to get into some theology here. And all of a sudden, I start talking and I start looking over at the, over at the God's counselor. And the woman's at her, at her uh, she don't say a lot. And she goes, mm, amen. <laughs> all right. We've got a believer in here. And I'm going to tell you all, one, Jesus is in public schools. Uh, I think that more kids need to hear Jesus in public schools. Um, but that kid it just started out with a question, and there it was. Evangelism sometimes is right there in front of you. And all it started, I mean, I haven't, let me tell you all, it's taken about a year to pull that out of Tremel. Just you could see the fatigue, and I think we're, you know we're we're not we're not thirteen year olds anymore. But I think most of us are still asking ourselves, man, why are things as bad as they are? We got to start with creation. Things weren't this bad, and we got to start with the end, which 
this bad forever because all things are being united under the authority of Christ, as Taylor just said. That's the plan of God. History is not cyclical. History is linear. And it's going somewhere. And Tremel heard that for the first time. And so when he asked about why are things the way they are? Why is there death? Why do my partners have to die? And I told him about a, a, a man named Jesus who resurrects dead people. And that's what we're going to read about. When we read this story, when we read this passage, I want you all to remember one thing. Every born-again believer is a Lazarus. Dead upon arrival, lifeless, no will to see the glory of God, no spiritual pulse, and then Jesus comes, and by the power of His Holy Spirit, He speaks by His Word, and He says, come out. That's how a Christian is made. And so, without any further ado, if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Spirit says. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have You laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, come and see Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could he not could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse thirty eight. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he had been, he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous thing you did in Jesus. That resurrecting work continues today. And Father, there is a, a final resurrection that we look forward to, Father. And as we read this passage this morning, Father, give us an excitement 
and an anticipation and a hope that one day we will all raise from the dead like Lazarus. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. When Kelly and I first got married, our first year was tough. And Kelly worked days, I worked nights. I was in seminary, figuring out how to be married. Kelly wanted a dog, I didn't want a dog. We didn't get a dog. Kelly got cancer. All sorts of good stuff happened that first year. And I remember one night things just got so bad. I was trying to keep it together. I was trying to make sure we understood this is just things are going to be hard. I think I even told her a few times. I think you had a pretty romanticized view of marriage. And she probably shot back, I think you need to get a little bit more excited about marriage. <laughs> and... I remember one night it just got so bad that we, I just cried. I just called on God and we cried together. And I remember the next day getting up, making coffee. By that time, Kelly had got me hooked on coffee. And I remember she got up. This was really the one part of the day. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. That, that one sliver of the day y'all get together. Sometimes at night, sometimes at morning. That was our time. And I remember her going, you cried last night. I said, yes, I did. She goes, I'm glad you cried. I said, why is that? She goes, because in that moment, I finally knew you were being vulnerable with me and that you cared for me. And I... I think I probably dismissed that in a moment, but I kind of marinated it on it all day long. And what occurred to me was that Kelly had a husband who paid bills. Kelly had a husband with a professional path. She had a provider. But what she was really longing for was a husband who could identify with her, who could understand her pain instead of just trying to fix her problems. And that is a small picture of what we see here in this passage in John chapter 11. John, Jesus isn't just coming on the scene and playing hero. We also see that Jesus loves this family so much, He is greatly moved, and He's brought to tears. The Son of God cries. The immutable God cries. Think about that. That is a miracle in and of itself. The shortest verse in the entire Bible is verse 35. It's also one of the most profound. Jesus wept. I think there's a reason they just stuck it to two words. Because it's, it's amazing. Twice in this passage it says that Jesus was greatly moved. That long Greek word that John uses here can mean indignant. He was troubled. In this passage, Jesus isn't just trying to fix the problem. He's lamenting the problem. And that's important for Christians because we have a God, we have an advocate with the Father who feels, who understands, and who cares. There is never a time you could pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, and before Jesus mediates on your behalf, He goes, hey, hey, I'm not going to hand this to the Father until you suck it up. 
You'll never hear that from the Son of God. He's compassionate. He's the Jesus who empathizes with us. I think this is the fact that Jesus weeps is almost just as significant, I believe, as the resurrection itself. Here in this passage, we see the humanity of Jesus, and then we get to see the deity of Jesus. So this morning, I want to break down this passage into three parts. Christ's love is compassionate. Maybe, no, yep, there it is. Christ's love is... Hey, thank you, Chris, for doing this, by the way. Christ's love is compassionate. Christ's love is for the Father. And Christ's love is powerful. Christ's love is compassionate. Christ's love is for the Father, and Christ's love is powerful. Let's read verses 32 through 36. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have You laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. So Jesus' love is compassionate, it's empathetic, it's selfless love. Verse 33 says he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. We, we talk a lot of times about the incarnation. I'm going to try to teach y'all a word or two every time I preach. Incarnation. That means God taking flesh. We talk about this almost every single Sunday in some form. The word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. We talk about how Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and I'm telling y'all in this passage, you can see both. The Son of God who existed eternally without sadness, without imperfection, without defect, decided to become a human and weep with sinners. I want y'all to consider something this morning. Jesus is God. Jesus is all-knowing, so He knows every time Lazarus sinned. He knows every evil thought Lazarus has ever had. He knows the unbelief that has resided in Lazarus' heart, and yet He is still crying over this man's death. Imagine if you went to somebody's funeral, and sitting at their funeral, you knew in your head every bad thing they had ever done or said about you. Do you think you'd be crying? If anyone has a reason not to cry, it's a holy God, and yet He is weeping with the rest of them. His love is so pure that look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus is moved. He has a warm heart. I want to ask all the men here a question. Not the women, the men. How many men in here, just raise your hand, have you ever listened to either your wife's problems or someone else's problems and you were listening to them and secretly in the back of your mind you're really just wanting to get to the end and skip to the part where you solve the problem instead of listening to them? Raise your hand. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't come on the scenes like, hey, 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 uh, where, where's the guy Hey, come on. No, no, I, I know, I know. Where's the tomb at? Hey, Bazinga, there you go. All right, done. All right, no. He comes on the crowd. He says, he talks to Martha first. Then he talks to Mary first. He talks to all of them. He weeps with them. Every person Jesus encounters here is, a, is not a solution. They're a soul. You know, I can't even help but think, if he's going to resurrect Lazarus, why not just roll the stone over yourself? You know about that? It's almost like he's trying to include them. 
hey, roll that stone over before I go and you know, resurrect him from the dead. Men, sometimes your wife cares just as much about your ability to listen to her as she does about fixing your problems. Sometimes your wife cares just as much about identifying with her as she does about helping her parents. Sometimes your children care more about spending time with them than doing things for them. In America, we live in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of culture, and Jesus is asking us to take time, know that He is God, and love people instead of treating them like they're hurdles. You know, if you really think about it, though, weeping is really nothing compared to what He's going to do at Calvary. The tears that he is shedding is nothing compared to the blood that will be spilt for them. I think a lot of people get caught up in the emotions of Jesus without remembering that the work of Jesus is our basis for knowing God. Let's not forget, every single person Jesus meets, he knows the worst possible version of them because he knows everything. And yet, even in the face of every reason not to die for them, He does so with joy and gladness. Our Savior is a weeping, obedient, crucified Jesus. The King of kings became a man of sorrows for sinners. Christ's love is compassionate. Number two, Christ's love is for the Father. Let's read verses 41 and 42. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I know that you had always I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people that they might know you sent me. Jesus Christ is incapable of doing anything apart from the Father. His love for Lazarus is but a reflection of his love for the Father. At all times, Jesus is concerned for the glory of the Father first. There are times, I'll admit, I was at Chick-fil-A the other day um, with Franklin. I think that was when we had our little just me and you. It was kind of weird. Um, and I noticed that Franklin waited to pray, and I didn't. I'm the pastor, and he's not. I think that was because I was real hungry. It was 6 a.m. <laughs> and I, the other, other day, I forgot to read uh, the Bible to my twins. There are some times when I'm just too tired or too hungry to try to take just a simple time to give glory to the Father. That never happened to Jesus. He walks on the scene. There is emotional turmoil and chaos. There's people crying everywhere. He could have very well been swept up, emotion-driven, gone in, saved him, and gone, okay, we're good now. He takes the time in the midst of it all to give glory to the Father. If at any point Jesus had compassion for Lazarus and that that compassion had been severed from His love for the Father, it would have been tainted with sin. Anytime we do something without faith, it's sin. Anytime we do something in the Lord's name without honoring Him in our hearts, it's sin. Anytime we take His grace for granted, it's sin. Paul says that which does not proceed from faith is sin. I think this is important for us to understand as Christians because our world is telling us that the more emotion we have, the more love for God we have. But Jesus' love isn't built on emotion, it's built on His relationship with the Father. Listen to what Jesus tells Mary in verse 4. Jesus said to her, 
Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The glory of God. Now, he didn't tell, he didn't tell her, did you see that if you believed, I would get you things? Did you, if you believed, God would do A, God would do B, God would get you blessings. That's not what he says. He says, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. The glory of God has to be sufficient for both Mary and Martha. You know, today I think faith is one of the most spiritually hijacked words in the church. Because I can go and listen to a prosperity gospel preacher and he's, I'm going to tell you, he's talking about faith. Here's, here's, a, here's briefly, I just want to take a, a time. This is what Jesus does not mean by believe. He doesn't mean that faith will get us things. He doesn't mean that we can treat faith as if it's more important than the object of our faith. Jesus isn't treating faith like it's something we can measure on a scale. If we just muster a little more, we'll get more from God. He's not treating faith like it's the most important thing in Christianity. For Jesus, faith is about the glory of God in Christ. This week I've heard a lot about, as I'm sure you have, about Officer Cooper. And a lot of people in our, in our community are saying, hey, we just got to believe. We got to have faith. And I think they should. But do people mean the same thing when they say that? There is a family on the other side of town grieving the loss of their son, and they're also saying, we got to have faith. So here's my question When the family of that young man says, we got to have faith, and the family of Officer Cooper says we got to have faith. Do they mean the same thing? They should. Because real faith isn't conditional. Real faith is not determined on our circumstances. Real faith does not depend on God to do something in order that we might follow Him. Real faith is not even built on our personal situation. No matter if it's a family of a wounded officer or a family of a grieving son, faith begins with four words. Let thy will be done. That's five. Your will, not mine. Your glory, not mine. Your kingdom, not mine. Two families separated by tragedy, separated by distance, separated by race can cry out to the very same God and believe that God's glory in Jesus is their greatest good. And that is why faith really doesn't mean, isn't really dependent on our circumstances. My faith in Jesus is not conditional on what Jesus does for me in this life. Let's remember that. Because what he doesn't tell her is, hey, did I not tell you if you believed that you would get blank? No, he says, did I not tell you if you believed you would see what? The glory of God. That has to be enough, church. What he says is if you believe, you might not get what your flesh wants. You might not even get it when you want. It might cost you dearly, but you will see the glory of God. The same Jesus who wept for Lazarus weeps for a dying world because they do not know the Father. And that is precisely why He came. Jesus' love is for the Father. Number three, Christ's love is powerful. When I was preparing this message this week, I thought to myself, 
What is the one passage, if I had to pick one piece of Scripture that describes the power of God's love, what would it be? I don't know, for some reason Psalm 103 came to mind. Um, I don't know if I have it up there or not. Let me just read it. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. You know why I came up with that? Because I think it takes an incredible amount of power to truly forgive someone. I think that's a power we don't have. That's the power of the cross. That's the power we see here in Lazarus 11. Christ's love isn't just sentimental love. It's got power behind it. And all Jesus does is say, Lazarus, come out. And a dead man starts walking. Every single person that Jesus saves... He walks up to their dead corpse. He commands them to come up by His Word. He breathes life into them and they walk out of sin and death not by their own power, but by His. Every Christian is a Lazarus. Lazarus didn't come out of the grave and go start bragging to his friends, like, hey, Jesus did 99%, but I had to, I had to, I had to receive Jesus doesn't start bragging and say, hey, I know God did most of the work, but I had to take that first step. No. Jesus said, come. Lazarus came. That is how sinners are saved. By the word of His power. You know, I think I listened to the gospel about 200 times before I was saved. What was it about that one time when I heard the gospel that I got saved? You ever thought about that? Raise your hand if... You heard the gospel at least a hundred times before you chose to believe it. What was the difference? Have you ever thought about that? Do you think that maybe it was um, the speaker was just a little bit better? Do you think that maybe you just had a little bit better attitude that day? Do you think that maybe his rhetoric and his reasoning and his argument was just a little bit more cogent? No! What was the difference? That day Jesus spoke into your dead heart and said, Rise! That's what happened. There is no one here worshiping the living God in Jesus this morning who did not come out of the grave just like Lazarus did. If you don't believe that, you're selling God short. I'm going to read real quick verses 43 and 44. And before we read them, I just want you to do this, okay? Instead of reading this like Lazarus, I'm going to read. Instead of reading Lazarus in the name, I want you to put your name in it. Okay? Here we go. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. That's conversion. That's evangelism. That's salvation. That is the gospel, friends. Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, raises the dead today. Verses 30, 43 and 44 are a small figurative picture of the gospel. 
Jesus speaks into the dead. They come, by, they come alive by the Word of His power. We start walking. And the Christian life itself is walking by the grace of God out of death, continuing to unshackle ourselves from the strips and the linens which bound us and crucifying the old hobby because He wants to go back in the grave every single day. Every, every single time I don't want to forgive somebody, every single time I hold a grudge, every single time I have a selfish thought, old Abby's wanting to go back. But the Spirit of God says, no, 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 look at Jesus. And I keep walking in grace. That is the Christian life. Jesus saved Abby years ago and said, come out, and in 2018, I am still walking. I'm a Lazarus. Can you say that? Every single Sunday we preach God's Word here in this triple-wide module. But we don't do it because of tradition. We preach God's Word every single Sunday because that's the voice that calls people from the grave. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. When I was talking to that 13-year-old boy in that guidance counselor's room, when he asked me those questions, I'll admit, a little bit of my flesh went, oh my gosh, here's my chance. I got My heart leapt out of my body because I was so excited. I'm like, this is the chance. And, and, and a little bit of pressure came on me. I was like, oh my gosh, this might be the only chance I get to talk about Jermel, about Jesus. His, his aunt's like a Jehovah's Witness. And I was like, oh man, i got to... Talk about the incarnation, and I got to. Oh man, I got to talk about this. I got to make sure I don't get this wrong. I got to make sure he knows about sin. I got to make sure I don't make sure he understands he's got to repent of his sin. Oh, don't forget about faith. Jesus Christ. No, I preach the word of God. I preach the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was not Abi Todd preaching the gospel. It was God preaching the gospel through Abi. Amen. If the success of evangelism in the church rests on us and us alone, we have no chance good news is it wasn't Mary and Martha who said come out it was Jesus who said hey get out and that is our hope today when I was talking to Tramel it wasn't hey hold on Tramel come on let's go get out of the drugs hold on get out of the games no 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 hold on I know no no don't don't talk back here here you know no it was the power of Jesus to change his heart. This morning, if you hear the voice of God in His Word, and you see the evil of your sin, and you see your dire need of a Savior, and you have come to see the beauty of Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life come out of the grave. And believe in the resurrection of the life. Let's pray. Father, Jesus' love was compassionate. It was your love. And oh boy, was it powerful. And Father, the risen, reigning King Jesus on His throne, sitting at your right hand, His power is not diminished. It is that much more powerful because by His Spirit, He is working all things for His glory. Father, Jesus is so much more King today 
than he has ever been. And our hope is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his kingship. Not because he came and coerced us, not because he compelled us to bow, but Father, we know that his love woos his bride. He came as a child. He lived as a servant and He reigns as a loving King. Father, I pray this morning that if anyone sees their conversion as a mere choice or decision or an intellectual um, working of the brain detached from Your sovereign grace, Father, I pray that they see that it takes nothing short of a resurrection to bring dead sinners to life. And I pray that the church at Haynes Creek would walk not simply as people who've made a good decision, but we may walk out of the grave as Lazaruses, worshiping the living God in Jesus. And all these things we ask in your precious son's name. Amen.